How long would a clock continue working in a crocodile? For a zombie outbreak to be a legitimate threat, how contagious would the virus need to be? We obviously use more than 10% of our brain. Where did that idea come from? So, some spiders have a working memory. Could we teach them to spell? You're listening to Device, your monthly book club with a science-based twist. I am your host, Emily T. Griffiths. And you know what? I have questions. Do you ever find yourself really tucked in to a good novel and come across a scientific assertion that's just, well, improbable? Now, I'm not talking about big picture stuff like time travel or alien worlds. There are some plot points which require the suspension of disbelief. I'm talking about the smaller stuff. Natural phenomenon or scientific events which occur to move the plot forward. Each device episode, we'll take a close look at a novel that uses nature and science as a plot device. We'll dissect why they did it and how much their tale strays from the natural world. This episode, we'll be discussing Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. and the mysterious polymorph Ice Nine. We're going to be digging in to the theoretical science behind Ice Nine, how Vonnegut depicts the end of the world with cataclysmic climate change, the science and morality of his characters, and the analogy between Ice Nine and a global climate shift. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to Device, and we're discussing Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Cat's Cradle is a satirical story about many things, and the dangers of Ice Nine is only one of them. It's an end-of-the-world black comedy. The book starts with a warning from Bukhanan, the leader of a fictional religion. All the true things I'm about to tell you are shameless lies. It is a profound ideology, which is ultimately empty and enlightening. Bokanan encourages his followers to live by harmless untruths. You know, those poetic white lies we tell ourselves. That make you brave and kind and happy and healthy. The story quickly transitions to the musings of our narrator, John. Call me Jonah. Who's fixated on telling the human story behind fictional super scientist Felix Honecker, a father of the atomic bomb. Honecker is a man that has no patience for untruths. He was challenged to find a solution for troops getting stuck in the mud during the Vietnam War to give America a tactical advantage. Vonnegut, famously, was an anti-war writer. That war is started by man without much consideration for the full impact war can have. Any man can call time out, but no man can say how long the time out will be. Honecker creates Ice Nine as a way to freeze mud so soldiers can walk on top of it. It is a thought experiment a scientific pursuit without 
much thought put into the possible ramifications of such a substance. In fact, he dies before he can share it with the world. It is left in the hands of his children who do not share in their father's genius. Angela. You must make father a saint because that's what he was. The eldest taken out of school when their mother died. Franklin. (laughs) I like the cut of your jib. The ultimate middle child and model building enthusiast. And Newt. It means whatever it means. See the cat? See the cradle? The most likable and nihilistic of the three. The siblings who carry a seed of ice nine in a thermos are selfish and short-sighted. I've seen a better man carved out of a banana. Vonnegut published the book in 1963, over a decade after leaving his job as a publicist for General Electric and just after the world had avoided a nuclear disaster. During his tenure, he saw GE encourage scientists, like his brother, to try and alter the weather. The concept of Ice-9 was inspired by his brother's research at GE. But if Ice-9 was intended just to make mud easier to walk on, it can't be that bad, right? Well, it turns out that Dr. Honecker didn't have a firm grasp of small scale. As a science fiction concept, Ice-9 plays with two known facts about the physical world. One is the molecular structure of ice. In the natural world, water freezes into ice at 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero degrees Celsius. It forms a hexagonal crystalline structure, which, unlike other solid compounds, is lighter and floats above its liquid counterpart. The second fact is a phenomenon known as supercooling. Have you ever pulled a water bottle out of the freezer and had it turn to ice the moment you moved it around? Or if you've lived in a snowy region of the world and left a plastic water bottle in your car overnight, sometimes it'll still be water in the morning, but not for long. If you disturb that bottle, you can seed rapid ice formation. See, the water in your plastic bottle has been purified for drinking, meaning that all foreign elements have been removed. Being left in a freezer or a cold car can lower the water's temperature to freezing, but there's a catch. There has to be an impurity around which ice crystals can form, the seed of ice formation. Without it, your water will remain in a supercooled state. Vonnegut takes that idea further. What if you had some ice? But instead of freezing in their typical crystalline structure, they froze in a different way. They froze in a stronger way, in a way that turns water into ice at 45.8 degrees Celsius, which is a whopping 114.4 degrees Fahrenheit. And if you seed water, any water with a single crystal of ice nine, any water cooler than 114 degrees Fahrenheit would technically be supercooled. So, you know, basically all of the water on Earth, in the sea, in the clouds, and underground. At the end of the novel, Ice Nine comes into contact with the ocean, instantly freezing everything as far as the eye can see. Uh, If the oceans froze, and taking a look at the world itself, that'd be about 80% of our um, land. That's a lot of coverage uh, of our space. This is Alex Tardy. With uh, NOAA National Weather Service, office based out of San Diego, I'm a meteorologist. We sat down to discuss the weather described at the end of Cat's Cradle and the weather conditions here in San Diego. To recap, the end of Cat's Cradle is set on a fictional island in the middle of the Caribbean called San Lorenzo. It is the birthplace of Bokanan, 
Jonah, the Honaker children, and a small cast of characters get into some mischief, which results with them freezing the world's oceans. Vonnegut describes the atmospheric conditions at first as tornadoes as far as the eye can see, looking like worms in the sky. The novel ends six months later with our little collective still stranded on San Lorenzo, getting on with their lives. So it goes. But in my mind, I'm just like, how? How are they still alive? Wouldn't the crazy shift in climate just kill them? First, let's start with the contact point, the moment the oceans froze. If the oceans froze in the way that they did, there would be a massive and sudden pressure and humidity drop. That, is that correct? When you remove the ocean, um, you're actually going to cut off your uh, flow of moisture or transport of moisture. And that could be from a hurricane to a storm to even a tornado. Uh, to me, that comes in mind is a movie out of Hollywood when I think of uh, tornadoes all over the place that look like worms hanging out of the tree. I would say it's pretty safe to say um, in most scenarios, if not all, that the world's not going to end with, with uh, hundreds of violent tornadoes everywhere. Tornadoes are a very micro-scale process and actually very difficult to form. Maybe what they're trying to, to display is more like dust devils everywhere. Hmm. Dust devils. And dust devils are formed by differential heating, the surface of the land getting too hot in one area and slightly cooler or a lot cooler in another area. And the air changes pressure density currents because of that. So the warm air gets lower pressure. And so the air will try to rush to that lower pressure to kind of fill it in, to balance it. Basically, weather is all about balancing the atmosphere in the ocean. That's hmm. all it is. You're trying to reach an equilibrium and you're never going to get it. Since San Lorenzo is near the equator, Vonnegut's windless dry heat prediction isn't outrageous. And what you're going to end up getting is uh, more extremes. So your polar regions would probably get colder pretty quickly. And your regions around the equator, because of the sun angle, depending on the time of the year, are going to get really hot, uh, meaning the land. Hot, dry, and stale. So the big question um, is how long could humans realistically survive? If we no longer have a suitable environment, if we no longer have the atmosphere as we know it, is it realistic that humans could survive for at least six months as they do at the end of this book? So basically you're taking the oceans out of the equation. Oceans are something we don't uh, typically appreciate, um, even locally. It, the only reason why our climate here in San Diego is as nice as it is because we have an air conditioner called the Pacific Ocean. So when you remove the oceans from the equation, uh, it's not going to be pretty. And I imagine it's going to be a scenario like Mars or Mercury where you still have storms and you still have wind and you have whatever, dust devils or things like that that are caused by thermal differences. It, I can't imagine um, the ability to live that long without the ocean. It's worth noting here that Alex is speaking strictly of humans' ability to survive. We can't speak for the wonderfully adaptive creatures we share this planet with. Personally, as a scientist, I could not see that being possible. That's what Vonnegut was ultimately talking about, what he was using Ice-9 as a device to illustrate. The end of the world as we know it, by our own stupidity. It is easy to argue that Felix Honecker was a man, disconnected from the negative impact his research could have on society. 
On the day the U.S. bombed Hiroshima, it was remarked to Dr. Honecker that... Science has now known sin. To which he responded... Huh. What is sin? Honecker created Ice-9 for no other reason than that he could. In the end, the selfish and reckless behavior of his children made good on the threat the Cold War promised. At the time it was written, Einstein was Vonnegut's way of showing the danger in ignoring how we are treating ourselves and the planet. Then, it was a threat poised by the atomic bomb. Of course, today, there are other modern threats to our world and our climate. More on that after the break. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Device, and we're discussing Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. In the novel... All the oceans freeze when they're exposed to Ice-9, and the world's climate drastically changes. Which is... topical. Climate change puts our city at risk. Our water resources, public health, and the ecosystems of our coastlines and forests are all put at risk by increased occurrences of drought, wildfires, and coastal flooding. Recently, a collaborative report was released by Climate Education Partners in an effort to help San Diego prepare for climate change with a scientific approach. The report is called San Diego 2050 is Calling, How Will We Answer? It discusses issues facing San Diego specifically in relation to climate change and what we need to have a plan for by 2050. So being able to manage that is is critical. And, you know, with 2050 you know, suggesting and and projecting with the long-range forecasting is... Again, Alex Tardy of the National Weather Service. um, We're going to have to come up with other ways to do it. More conservation, uh, more efficiency, more recycling, more toilet-to-tap, other sources of water, whether that be desalinization or um, bigger reservoirs. I don't know all the answers, but it's going to have to be more management, and it's, it's costly. And it's not just a matter of flipping a check either and paying for more or bigger items. This, of course, begs the question, who has the answers? Now, no good scientist is going to claim that they have all of the answers, especially on something as universal as climate change. But we have some of the top researchers in the world in our backyard. The Scripps Institution of Oceanography has been at the forefront of global climate change research since Charles Keeling began measurements of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in 1958. That's five years before Cat's Cradle was published. Researchers from Scripps are heavily featured in the 2050 report. We could talk to one of them, but since the future is calling, let's talk to the future. 
All right, my name is Osanachi Ajoku. I am currently a fourth year PhD candidate at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I am Elizabeth Drankard, Liz. I am a postdoc at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And I am Daniela Fajani-Diaz, and I'm a third year PhD student also at Scripps. These researchers are tackling just one aspect of the global climate problem. My research focuses on the effects that biomass burning in Africa has on the West African monsoon. And I am studying the impact of climate change on, generally speaking, uh, California fisheries. And I'm studying those slow variations in, in the ocean. And are looking towards the future. Because, as they point out, this is a global issue. No city is acting in a vacuum. So San Diego can do this, and that's fantastic. But if they're the only city in America that makes these changes, it won't have really a significant impact on the global climate. And that's really still going to affect the large-scale patterns of weather and what we see here. So I'm, I'm very proud of the efforts that are going into it. But alone, it's not going to make a real difference. Of course, that doesn't mean it's for nothing. Uh, I think that even if one city by, by itself is not enough to solve the problem, it's good as an example for the others, right? And although the problem is global, yes, but we have to act local. It's easy. You cannot think something that's global if it's not applicable. You have to have small goals. And I think that's what San Diego is doing now. For me, it's, it's always hard to say whether it's enough. What I do agree in this document is that these businesses are doing their best efforts to cut down CO2 uh, energy use. And I think that's more, that's very, very, very practical. I think what we really struggle with is that you have to generate this sense of importance. You have to make people care. And it's hard in this world today because there's so much on social media. It's so loud. There's so much noise. There's so many stories that are just pull at your heartstrings. So it's trying to direct all of those emotions to do something productive. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this is also a point that Vonnegut makes in Cat's Cradle. 55 years ago, when Jonah is talking to Dr. Honecker's former colleague, Dr. Breed. Scientists don't always do the best job at explaining science. There is a really interesting plot conversation between, I think, the secretary of Dr. Breed, right? Mm. Yeah, where she, she mentions something on those lines that uh, you think too much or I don't understand what you, what you think or what you say and... It's really interesting the way she, as a non-scientist, trying to explain that the scientists, they cannot explain what they, they do. I second what Danny said, uh, that section with Dr. Breed. He goes on to say that if we can't, as scientists, explain our science to an eight-year-old, then we're charlatans. I mean, we really have no business doing what we're doing. Cradle doesn't just offer pessimism, though, and how we are sowing our own tragic fate. Right before Ice Nine covers the Earth during a military display celebrating America's global victories in San Lorenzo, the U.S. ambassador gives a sobering speech. I'm about to do a very unambassadorial thing. I'm about to tell you what I really feel. He asks those gathered if the loss of soldiers during war who are no older than children, is really an appropriate justification for such a thrilling air display. 
The answer is yes, on one condition, that we, the celebrants, are working consciously and tirelessly to reduce the stupidity and viciousness of ourselves and of all mankind. I suggest that while science has certainly known sin, modern-day scientists are not oblivious to that. I mean, listen to these guys. <laughs> they are so engaged. They are examining things from every angle. They are thinking about not only the science, but the politics. And if you start applying taxes or these different regulations, if people start seeing them as a burden in the moment, um, then a politician doesn't have much chance of sticking around. They won't be reelected. And the social ramifications. I can talk to leaders about in, in, in varying countries about coming together and creating a cohesive plan uh, for mitigating climate change because it's not fair that you feel the effects of what a country is doing thousands of miles away. If you're a small island country, per se, you're feeling the sea level rise done by big polluters and you're definitely not one of them. Mm -hmm. So it, it's the same story in different places. As a plot device, how does Ice-9 stand up against real science? Uh, not that well. All scientists we talked to found laughable problems with how Vonnegut describes Ice-9's impact on the world. Just the climate science part of my brain, the first thing I think of is radiation. The reflection of radiation. So radiation is the energy that comes from the sun um, and is the main driver of what controls or what's keeps the temperature at a specific threshold on the planet. So that would be the first thing to change with Ice-9. After a certain time, the Earth would be... I made some calculations, like, of the very simple model, and it could be, like, minus 100 Celsius. How did they not get frostbite when they could walk around and, and touch stuff that had Ice-9, but it was only when they swallowed it or touched the internal fluids that it actually froze them? I'm like, what? That, that, that bothered me. Like, especially, maybe not normally it would give them frostbite, but what if they were sweating? And it's worth mentioning that Ice-9 is a real thing. Ice structures have different phases, and there are ices 1 through 16, as well as other ice variants. None have the properties of Vonnegut's creation. They mostly exist in laboratory settings, as they are unstable. The real Ice-9 can exist only in extremely low temperatures and high pressure, that's pretty different. So the science is wrong. The description of catastrophic climate at the end got some things right, but it's mostly simple fantasy. However, when paired with Buchanan and his teachings, a few lies go a long way. I wanted all things to seem to make some sense. So we could all be happy, yes, instead of tense. And I made up lies so that they all fit nice. And I made this sad world a pair of dice. Cat's Cradle suggests that we humans stumble trying to find meaning in our lives through science, religion, and other avenues. Often, we get lost in the dogmatic narratives that they offer. I tell you, we humans are here on Earth to fart around. And don't let anybody tell you different. But never does he suggest that we should stop exploring, even if we are only pretending to understand. Busy, busy, busy. 
trying to be better may be a hopeless effort, but that doesn't mean it isn't a noble one. Ice Nine is nothing more than a harmless untruth for us, the reader. A cautionary tale on how easy it is to allow selfishness to feed our stupidity and viciousness. That we can be better versions of ourselves for all mankind. Our science is complicated. It took us a long time to get to where we are in terms of training. But in reality, once we've understood something or think we understand something, we should be able to make it available to anybody and, and just accessible. I think that's something that gets underemphasized right now. And, and to hear that that was still an issue then, or at least something that people thought about when this book was written, is um, it's thought-provoking. And it's inspiring as well to be like, no, this is absolutely true, and it was true before. So, yeah. Device is written and produced by myself and Derek Acosta. It is recorded at KPBS and Mega64 Studios in San Diego, California. Our audio engineer is John Wanzer, with additional music by the Bicycats. Voice actors for this episode were Derek Acosta, Keith Hammond, Allison Wanzer, and John Wanzer. At KPBS, Emily Jankowski is technical director, Kinsey Moreland is podcast coordinator, Lisa J. Morset is operations manager, and John Decker is director of programming. You can get our monthly episodes of Device on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We thank Alex from the National Weather Service and Liz Osi and Daniela from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography for coming in to speak with us. In those interviews, Alex and I talked more about weird weather in San Diego and the climate action proposal. Liz, Osi, and Daniela had read the book, so we not only talked more about the future implications of their research, but how dense and relevant Cat's Cradle still is. And it forces you to think, and I think that's the basic thing that you'd want a book to convey to a reader, like, ha, just think. And to me, like, that was, like, the best part of the book. Both interviews are full of gems that we just couldn't get into this show. But good news, you can get the full interviews on device interviews on your preferred podcast app. Next episode, we'll be discussing Jaws by Peter Benchley and talking about shark conservation. So get reading. Device is made possible in part by the KPBS Explore program, because science is at the heart of every exploration. And the best stories take us somewhere worth going. Thanks for listening.